And I thought, well, maybe the best thing I could do is to try to give you with an acrostic, the word gospel, some thoughts to hang your gospel witnessing on. And so if you have a piece of paper, I want you to write the word gospel down the side of the page, okay? G-O-S-P-E-L, in case anybody has trouble spelling it, okay? Gospel, gospel. And I'm going to give you, with this acrostic, some key words that start with G-O-S-P-E-L, and then I want to give you six key biblical texts. Now, I'm going to cross-reference probably a lot more than that, but I'm going to give you six key biblical texts so that you don't fall into the trap of being a very motivated Christian who then becomes very less motivated to proclaim Christ to your neighbor because you're fearful, because you don't know what to say. You don't know how to respond. You, you, you know the Bible. You know the Word of God for the most part, and, and you want to proclaim Christ to these who are in your own sphere of influence, but you don't have any tracks to run on. You want to be able to, to proclaim the gospel, but you want to know where to go. You want to know where those great texts are that you can share with them from the Word of God so that they can understand truly, unlike so many in the Jesus People movement, didn't understand the full nature of the true gospel. And I want to help you with that this morning, okay? If there's a, a way we can learn from history so that we don't repeat it, it's to understand the gospel in its true biblical essence, okay? All right, here's G. G, what do you think it is? Very good class, very good. G is for God. As one book title recently has it, and it's true, God is the gospel. God is the gospel. The essence of the person and work of Jesus Christ, who we heard in the first hour, who is God, the Lord Jesus Christ, God is the gospel, and God Himself is the one who initiates salvation. And for that key text, I want you to turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is the great place to start. This is where we should start. John chapter 3. You might not have even thought of this before, but notice that very famous, in fact, the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16. Notice that God is the one who initiates salvation. I know that so many of you know that, but let's think through that as you think about proclaiming the gospel to those around you. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave. God is in the business of initiating the gospel word, the seed of the word, salvation, the proclamation of the truth that Jesus Christ loves sinners and is purposing to save them. God is the one who's initiating that truth. And not only that truth, but God is the one who is opening blind eyes and unstopping deaf ears. God is the one who's doing it. Notice, for God so loved the world that He gave. If, in fact, God had not been disposed, desired, purposed to save anyone in the world, as the world is plunged by Adam's sin into eternal darkness, if God had purposed not to save anyone, would He have been completely righteous in doing so? Yes. That's why we call it, when He does, grace. Grace. And He loved the world so that, for the purpose that, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever, whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment 
that the light, notice in your NASB Bible, the capital L there, the light, Christ, has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That's a key text, my friends. That's a key text. And if all you get is first base with someone that you're sitting across the aisle from, or that you're talking across the fence as a neighbor, or you're in the classroom with, or you're in your workplace, and after work you're having a cup of coffee, if, if you only get to first base and you talk to them about God and you quote to them John 3.16, God can use even that to bring somebody to faith in Christ, right? That's a key text. And every one of us are familiar with John 3.16, and virtually every one of us can quote it. Maybe not this entire passage, but certainly that verse. And you can say to them something like this, God is the one who initiates who is saved and who is not. And you, my friend, I'm talking with you and I want you to be saved. And I want you to know that God loves the world, you're a part of the world, and that God has brought His Son into the world. He sent His Son, His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you want everlasting life? That's all you get to with someone. You only have five minutes. Maybe you've had a number of years with a neighbor. Maybe you only have two minutes. What are you going to say? How are you going to respond? Tell them that God initiates salvation and that God is bringing through you, the instrument, the human instrument, a word of truth to that person so that they too could have eternal life. That, that is crucial. And if that's all the time you have... Praise God, He gave you that time with that individual, all right? That's the G of gospel. How about O? O. Let's call it oath, O-A-T-H. And you say, wow, that's kind of different. All right, go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You say, what, what do you mean by oath? That's really just a word that speaks of God's promise, God's promise. Or you might say God's purpose. Obviously, I've chosen O because of what? Well, you have to come up with an O for the acrostic, right? But that works. Acts chapter 2. Remember what's happening in Acts chapter 2. Now, this is a key text, and this is an opportunity for you to have in your mind when you're practically thinking about sharing not just the first five minutes with that person, but the Lord's given you another five minutes, another ten minutes. And you tell somebody, did you know that not only does God love the world that He gave His only begotten Son, but that God had a plan, He had a purpose, He made an oath to Himself all the way back in these Old Testament times from the earliest days that He would redeem a people. God made an oath, He made a promise to Himself. And what God promises to Himself and to those human beings He promises, He delivers. Promises made, promises kept. And when Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost, Notice what he says to those around him in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel. So he's talking to his own nation. Listen to these words. That means this is very important. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You say, now wait a minute. When I'm witnessing to somebody, I don't want to get into predestination. Hey, I got you. I understand that. 
John Calvin called the doctrine of election the family secret. The family secret, right? It's not as though you must say to everybody that you're witnessing to, hey, let me tell you about the gospel, and oh, by the way, let me emphasize the doctrine of predestination. Okay? That may not be where you want to go initially, right? I think John 3.16 is the best, right? But God has an oath. He's got a plan. He purposes to do something. And this is what Peter's doing when he's preaching to them. There's a predetermined plan, and through the foreknowledge of God, you, you Jews, that's who he's talking to, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. Who is that? The Romans. The Romans, right? It was a form of Roman execution, this cross. So who, by the way, if you were on Larry King Live, and as he posed that question to many people, who killed Jesus? There's even popular books today, right? The killing of Jesus. Who killed Jesus? Very good. That's right. Because the first person, it says, who planned it all was who? God the Father. Who else did it in a very unholy way? The Jews and the Romans. Which means to say the whole world. Because even though they're the ones who physically did it, you and I, we did it in our hearts through our own sinfulness, right? So, every one of us. They did it particularly, physically, literally, right then and there. But God had a plan that included their doing it and our being guilty even in complicity to it. Notice, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, this is King David, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will, make me, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter, after quoting that Old Testament passage, quoting David, says, Brethren, verse 29, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Why did he say that? Well, who did they love? Who did they follow? King David. Who did they presume would be following in King David's line? Messiah. Now Peter is linking them to King David and someone who will come later, the Messiah. But what he wants them to know first and foremost is, I told you that this man, Jesus the Nazarene, he was raised from the dead. David's still in the tomb. You guys like David so much. You love Moses so much. But I'm telling you, there's another Israelite who has made claim to be the Messiah, as you heard in the first hour, and he's not in a tomb. Moses is. David is. Jesus is not. He's been raised from the dead. Verse 30, And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath, there's our word, with an oath, to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. In other words, he's not in that tomb. He was only in there three days. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know. This is Peter's preaching to them. For certain that God has made him 
both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, do you think they got the message? Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, convicted, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, repent. And after you've repented, that means after you've come to Christ, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And notice importantly, verse 39, for the promise, the oath, the plan, the predetermined plan, foreknowledge of God, what God was purposing to do from eternity past into time, right up to Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost, for the promise is for you and your children, who is that related to? The Jews, the Jews, and who else? And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. Who's that? That's the Gentiles. Who killed Jesus? Jews and Gentiles. Who has God promised to save? Jews and Gentiles. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. My dear friends, if you're witnessing to somebody, you can tell them on the authority of God's Word that God is the Gospel, God initiates the Gospel message, and God provides the remedy for our condemnation through the Lord Jesus Christ coming to this earth. And if you believe in His name, you have eternal life. And furthermore, God confirmed that with an oath, an oath, a promise, a plan, a predestining plan that included salvation, not just for the people of God, Israel, but also for as many people who are far off, who are not a part of the nation of Israel, who weren't a part of the covenants of promise, but who are nevertheless included in this predestining plan, this foreknowledge of God, so that when Peter is preaching on that day and when I'm preaching here, those Jews and those Gentiles in any audience, and that's the two races of the world, in fact, not races, races, but ethnicities, two people groups, that's all there is, Jews and Gentiles, so that when we preach, we say something like this, God made an oath, and what God does, He keeps His promise. In fact, look in your Bibles over at 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is not one of those key texts, but this is a cross-reference that will help you. If someone says, well... Show me that again. You showed me in one passage, but show me that again. You're witnessing to somebody. Show me that again. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the what? Promise. According to the promise of what? Life in Christ Jesus. God made a promise that there would be a certain number of people made up of Jews and Gentiles who would have life in Christ Jesus. And what God promises, He delivers. He delivers. He's promised it. It's a guilt-edge guarantee that what He's designed salvation to be for those for whom it was designed, He will deliver on that promise. He will. You, you can bank on it. In fact, look at verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to His own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from when? From all eternity. So you can start with John 3.16, right? And you can say, God initiated salvation by sending His Son, but you can encourage someone by saying, oh, and by the way, this plan didn't start there. It actually started in eternity past. God made a promise. He made a promise to Himself. He made a promise to the Son. And He made a promise to a people 
who were as yet unborn. And when he made that promise, he was going to fulfill that promise through Christ. So much so, look at Titus chapter 1. So much so, Paul emphasizes this in his own theology by saying it this way. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. There's that election language again. And the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His Word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Wow, what, what, a, what a great start to the book of Titus. I mean, those two verses are power-packed with theology. Paul says, let me, let me just encourage you for a minute. If you have faith, it's because you were chosen of God. If you have the truth, the knowledge of the truth, that's according to godliness, it's because you have eternal life, and you have eternal life because God promised it long ages ago, even from His own word, and I, Paul, was entrusted by God to preach this word to you, and that's why you believe, and that's why you're saved, and that's why you were chosen, because God cannot lie. You ever lied before? I, I won't ask for a show of hands. We'd all be guilty. You ever broken a promise? We all have. Think about this immortal God who made a promise to redeem persons both from Jew and Gentile and who never lied and who has and is and will fulfill every single promise. That's a God who can be trusted. Do you think that might have, if the Spirit of God is working in the life of the person you're witnessing to, have a great impact? You could ask them, have you ever lied? You ever failed to keep your promise? You want to know someone who's never lied, who's never failed to keep his promises and who promises to redeem those who in repentance and faith trust him for salvation? If the Spirit of God is working on that life, those would be the words that the Spirit of God would use for that life, right? That's what an oath is, my friends. That's what a promise is. That's what a plan is. That's what God is doing when He purposes to redeem. So the gospel transcends even the idea of Jesus Christ coming into this world as a man in space and time, and it goes all the way back to eternity past where God had a predestinating plan and a purpose, an oath, a promise that He will fulfill. He will carry it out. You cannot see a God that you and I serve who created this world as a liar. He will fulfill everything He says He's going to do, including your salvation and mine. That is a hopeful word in a world that is full of lies, full of lies. S, God for gospel, O for oath, and S for, what do you think? Sin, sin. We've got to talk about sin when we talk about the gospel. Because if you don't have a doctrine of sin, then the gospel makes no sense. It makes no sense. It's just, a, it's just another panacea for preachers to get rich off their preaching. Sin, according to Romans 3, is this. Romans chapter 3, that's the next key text. If you want to take somebody to a key text in your New Testament when you're proclaiming the gospel, you can't get any better than Romans chapter 3. Verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a hideous list of sinfulness in people, and it's infected us all. So much so, verse 19 says, Now we know 
that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, which is true of all of us, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. In other words, no excuses. Nobody can say, I haven't sinned. Nobody can say, no, I didn't do that. That, that, that doesn't characterize me, that list that you've read. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified in God's sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of what? Sin. Please don't proclaim a gospel to anyone without telling them about sin. You see on television so many people who are talking so positively about what God can do to benefit them. You've heard those people, those preachers. Here's what you get. Do you want eternal life? Do you want a better life here and now? Do you want this? Do you want that? You know what often that is? It's the benefits of the gospel without the gospel itself. Because what we ought to be saying is, if you're doing witnessing in a crowd like this, or you're doing witnessing to one-on-one with a person, and you're saying, look, God made this wonderful, fantastic promise long ages ago, and any purpose to save a group of people, and in fact, in time, in space and time, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, virgin, born under the law, and in fact, at the fullness of time, exactly when the time was right, He sent forth His Son. And why? Why? Why did He send His Son? Because we're all guilty. Guilty of sin, guilty as sin. And we need a Savior. Because our sin separates us from God. We're unholy. We're unrighteous. This, this list is our autobiography. I could have written this. This this terrible list. And my own mouth is closed and I'm accountable to God for all the good deeds I think I can do. No flesh will be justified through God's telling me about who I am comes the knowledge of my own sin. What's the answer? What do I do? Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, no Jew-Gentile distinction at this moment. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's the answer? Verse 24. Being justified, declared righteous, not by my own works, not by my own flesh, not by pulling myself by my, up by my own bootstraps, but being declared righteous by God as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And how did he do that? How was my sin dealt with? God displayed publicly as a satisfaction, a propitiation in his blood, Jesus Christ, and I received that through faith. It's repentance and faith. Peter said repent in Acts 2. Paul says believe here. John 3, believe. That's what I have to do in response to the gospel. That's not the gospel. It's what I do in response to the gospel. Look in your Bibles over at 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is not one of those key texts, but this is a cross-reference that will help you. If someone says, well, show me that again. You showed me in one passage, but show me that again. You're witnessing to somebody. Show me that again. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the what? Promise. According to the promise of what? Life. In Christ Jesus. God made a promise that there would be a certain number of people made up of Jews and Gentiles who would have life in Christ Jesus. 
And what God promises, He delivers. He delivers. He's promised it. It's a guilt-edge guarantee that what He's designed salvation to be for those for whom it was designed, He will deliver on that promise. He will. You, you can bank on it. In fact, look at verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from when? From all eternity. So you can start with John 3.16, right? And you can say, God initiated salvation by sending His Son, but you can encourage someone by saying, oh, and by the way, this plan didn't start there. It actually started in eternity past. God made a promise. He made a promise to Himself. He made a promise to the Son. And He made a promise to a people who were as yet unborn. And when He made that promise, He was going to fulfill that promise through Christ. So much so, look at Titus chapter 1. So much so, Paul emphasizes this in his own theology by saying it this way. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. There's that election language again. And the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even His Word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Wow, what, what, what a great start to the book of Titus. I mean, those two verses are power-packed with theology. Paul says, let me, let me just encourage you for a minute. If you have faith, it's because you were chosen of God. If you have the truth, the knowledge of the truth, that's according to godliness. It's because you have eternal life, and you have eternal life because God promised it long ages ago, even from His own word, and I, Paul, was entrusted by God to preach this word to you, and that's why you believe, and that's why you're saved, and that's why you were chosen, because God cannot lie. You ever lied before? I, I won't ask for a show of hands. We'd all be guilty. You ever broken a promise? We all have. Think about this immortal God who made a promise to redeem persons both from Jew and Gentile, and who never lied, and who has and is and will fulfill every single promise. That's a God who can be trusted. Do you think that might have, if the Spirit of God is working in the life of the person you're witnessing to, have a great impact? You could ask them, have you ever lied? Have you ever failed to keep your promise? You want to know someone who's never lied, who's never failed to keep his promises, and who promises to redeem those who in repentance and faith trust him for salvation? If the Spirit of God is working on that life, those would be the words that the Spirit of God would use for that life, right? That's what an oath is, my friends. That's what a promise is. That's what a plan is. That's what God is doing when He purposes to redeem. So the gospel transcends even the idea of Jesus Christ coming into this world as a man in space and time, and it goes all the way back to eternity past where God had a predestinating plan and a purpose, an oath, a promise that He will fulfill. He will carry it out. You cannot see a God that you and I serve who created this world as a liar. He will fulfill everything He says He's going to do, including your salvation and mine. That is a hopeful word in a world that is full of lies, full of lies. S, God for gospel, O for oath, and S for, what do you think? Sin, sin. We've got to talk about sin when we talk about the gospel. Because if you don't have a doctrine of sin, then the gospel makes no sense. It makes no sense. It's just, a, it's just another panacea for preachers to get rich off their preaching. Sin 
according to Romans 3, is this. Romans chapter 3. That's the next key text. If you want to take somebody to a key text in your New Testament when you're proclaiming the gospel, you can't get any better than Romans chapter 3. Verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a hideous list of sinfulness in people, and it's infected us all. So much so, verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, which is true of all of us, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. In other words, no excuses. Nobody can say, I haven't sinned. Nobody can say, no, I didn't do that. That, that, that doesn't characterize me, that list that you've read. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified in God's sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of what? Sin. Please don't proclaim a gospel to anyone without telling them about sin. You see on television so many people who are talking so positively about what God can do to benefit them. Have you heard those people, those preachers? Here's what you get. Do you want eternal life? Do you want a better life here and now? Do you want this? Do you want that? You know what often that is? It's the benefits of the gospel without the gospel itself. Because what we ought to be saying is, if you're doing witnessing in a crowd like this, or you're doing witnessing to one-on-one with a person, and you're saying, look, God made this wonderful, fantastic promise long ages ago, and any purpose to save a group of people, and in fact, in time, in space and time, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, virgin, born under the law, and in fact, at the fullness of time, exactly when the time was right, He sent forth His Son. And why? Why? Why did He send His Son? Because we're all guilty. Guilty of sin, guilty as sin. And we need a Savior. Because our sin separates us from God. We're unholy, we're unrighteous. This, this list is our autobiography. I could have written this. This this terrible list. And my own mouth is closed and I'm accountable to God for all the good deeds I think I can do. No flesh will be justified through God's telling me about who I am comes the knowledge of my own sin. What's the answer? What do I do? Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, no Jew-Gentile distinction at this moment. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's the answer? Verse 24. Being justified, declared righteous, not by my own works, not by my own flesh, not by pulling myself up by my own bootstraps, but being declared righteous by God as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And how did He do that? How was my sin dealt with? God displayed publicly as a satisfaction, a propitiation in His blood, Jesus Christ, and I received that through 
faith. It's repentance and faith. Peter said repent in Acts 2. Paul says believe here. John 3, believe. That's what I have to do in response to the gospel. That's not the gospel. It's what I do in response to the gospel. And the gospel says my sin has to be dealt with. And I know it's not popular in terms of the media, and I know it's not popular, and I know it's very scary and very fearful to stand with your neighbor across the fence or be at the coffee table or talk to somebody after work or look at a classmate in the eye and say, what are you going to do about your sin? You know you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. How are you going to be right with God? What do you think the path is to salvation? Do you have eternal life? Do you know what it means to be a person who has peace? Doesn't it say, and the path of peace they have not known? And there's no fear of God in their eyes. Challenge them. Ask them. Do you have peace? Do you have peace with God? And when they say no, the Spirit of God's working on their heart, tell them that they can believe and they can receive the righteousness of God through Christ. That's, that's the S. How about P? Well, Paul's just said it. Peace. Peace. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. This is, this is another great key text. Now, before I read Ephesians 2, I know some of you might be saying, okay, well, you've read these passages pretty extensively. Do you mean to tell me that this is what I have to go through with every person? No. In fact, you may only be able to have the opportunity to have one or two verses of what I've read and your ability to read it to them. You say, well, that means I've got to carry my Bible around with me at all times? Well, no, which means I have to what? I better hide it in my heart. And in fact, if I'm one of those who says I love the gospel, I ought to have it in my heart. And I ought to be able to share it with someone from my heart. And I want, according to Ephesians chapter 2, to have peace and I want to share it with others so that they might have peace. Notice what it says. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead, verse 1, in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Paul's saying, I was there, so were you, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. My friends, that would be a key text. To memorize, to learn, to love, and to proclaim. You say, well, where's the peace? Where's the peace that's referred to here? Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. These Gentiles, for He Himself is our peace. Who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, 
into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Not just the hostility between Jew and Gentile toward each other, but the hostility that we have with God because we are angry with God through our sin and He is angry with us because of our sin. Remember what James said in James 4? He who is friend of the world is what? An enemy with God. You see, we, we, have, a, we have a hostility problem. We've got a hostility with God problem and we've got a hostility with other people problem. And part of the gospel, part of the P in gospel is that God has made a way so that we can have peace with our fellow man and we can have even in a greater way peace with God. Peace with God. We now have through Christ peace with God. That's the gospel. That's gospel work. No human heart can be at peace with everybody around them and with God through their own efforts. It will not happen because in our sinfulness, we are absolutely thinking of whom? Ourselves. We're number one in our eyes. And if somebody gets in my way from my plan, my purpose, my desire, my goal, my expectations, I'll run you over. I'll run around you. I'll get done what I need to get done. And if God is the one who I think is the culprit, not giving me what I want, then I'll shake my fist in His face and say, what have you done? And when God looks at us and He sees that kind of sinfulness, He says that sin will be judged. It will be punished. It must be. But even though we were dead in our transgressions and sins, He was rich in mercy. And He saved us, not by any works that we did in righteousness, but by His mercy, He caused us to be sin forgiven because of what Christ did for us on the cross. God is the gospel. God initiated it. There's an oath, a promise to be fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled by the only one who can fulfill it, who never lied. Sin has to be dealt with. It has to be punished. And it was punished for all believers on that cross through Christ so that we might not be hostile to God but have peace with God. What about the E? Let's call it evidence. Evidence. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know what the evidence is that Jesus Christ is who He said He is? And the confirmation thereof, the evidence, the stamp of approval, the, the very certainty that Christ is God, it's the resurrection. It's the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here's the gospel, my friends, verse 3, for I delivered to you, now, was it of any lesser importance? Was it second place, third place, down the list in priority? Now, here's what Paul says the gospel is. 
for I delivered to you as of first importance. None of us who are living our lives and who are not living the gospel and proclaiming the gospel are doing anything of first importance unless it is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, that's Paul. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain. I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, the apostles, so we preached and so you believed. Notice what he says, verse 12. Now if Christ is preached, that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Our faith rests on the death, burial, and of supreme importance, resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the very confirmation that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. And that's the evidence. The, ev the evidence is that empty tomb. The evidence is that God has, has brought Christ into the world as a man, though God He is, lived a perfect life, experienced an ignominious death, a cruel death on a cross, and he did not stay in that tomb beyond those three days like David and Moses and all the rest of humanity has, but he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures, and there was ample evidence. Why does Paul say, and to more than 500 Evidence, evidence, evidence. Remember the scripture? At the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established, proven. How about not just two or three? How about 500? And how about every other believer since then who believes it by faith that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead? That's evidence, my friend. That's ample evidence. And that's the gospel. Lastly, L, lordship. Lordship. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is an amazing text, and it's one of those key texts, I believe, that you and I need when we're witnessing to others. Six key texts. Here's the sixth and last. I wish I could read chapter 1 and chapter 2 for you, because 13 times in these two chapters, 13 times is the word Lord mentioned. Most, if not all of them, are referring to the Lord Jesus, not to the Father, but to the Lord Jesus, the vast majority of these, if not all of them. And notice what it says in verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God, 2 Thessalonians 1.6, to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. This is His second coming glory, with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In addition to a resurrection, in addition to an ascension, in addition to the coronation of Jesus as Lord, there is also ultimately coming the Lord Jesus Christ with His mighty angels in flaming fire, 
dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. It's amazing. I I assume that that verse as a key text, unlike maybe the first five that I read to you, is probably one of the most neglected. But we, we have a message, and that message includes this gospel message saying to people, Jesus Christ will return, and when He returns, He's going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's a part of the gospel, isn't it? It's a part of the gospel warning that there's a coming judgment. And we ought to include a key text like that in our gospel presentations. We may not have more than five minutes, but if you do, if God grants you more than five minutes with someone, more than ten, more than an hour, maybe you have a relationship, an ongoing relationship with that person, you ought to give them these key texts and so many more of your own choosing so that you can clearly communicate the gospel to them. You're on an airplane and you're thinking, what do I say? What do I do? Just think of gospel. G. O-S-P-E-L. Lord, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to remember some of these texts so that I can preach this gospel word and see people saved. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together. I pray that none of us would be able to come away from this place misunderstanding the gospel. I pray that if there is anyone here who truly doesn't know you, who's not turned from their sin, and place their confidence and trust in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lord sent from heaven as Son of God to redeem those who turn and trust. Lord, thank You for the Lordship of Jesus Christ that we submit to, that we're called upon to obey, and that if we don't obey, we will be away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power, paying the penalty for our own sins for all eternity. Lord, deliver us from that so that we might cling to the cross as the only true object of our salvation. And Lord, for those who are here and truly know and love the Lord already, may it motivate all of us in those small or great opportunities that you give us to witness to Jesus Christ from those in which we have some level of relationship, whether it's five minutes or five hours or five days or five years. Allow us to be faithful to proclaim this very gospel to the glory of you, Father, through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.